I'm, I will try to mix here and there some joke, but I'm afraid, or that maybe, I hope it will not be too boring for you, because I want to address also the very sensitive topics. Nonetheless, a reaction to these clips, no? Especially, tell me something, I was so shocked, the second one. It wasn't meant as a joke, it's meant... No, 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 it's really... Propaganda. Because language. I thought, because I was expecting two things at the end. You know, in Hollywood, we or they call this running gag, you know. Always the same jokes, like ich habe zwei ein Kollegen, blah, blah. And then that at the end, there will be the final reversal. I have two ideas, I warn you, the second one is schmutzig, obscene. <laughs> the first one would be that when the Frau sagte, you know, uh, ja, dieser Zimmer ist für Sie, no? That then dieser Pseudo-Turk yeah. turns to the other and says, oh, die, uh, die alte Hure hat endlich kapiert, dass wir <laughs> die Zimmer brauchen, you know that. Or the other, I warn you, much more vulgar, is that at the end, when they finished, I warn you, I am ashamed to say it, but you know, we communists say everything to the end. That she would say, but here gibt es auch eine Höhle, die man, my, mein Mann, der er ist zu alt, nicht mehr eigentlich erfüllen kann. Kennen Sie mir helfen? Und dann sagt er, ja, ich habe einen Freund, der das macht. Yes, yes, das wäre meine Version von diesem. Okay. No, but seriously, I'm still so shocked. This wasn't meant as a joke. <laughs> no, no, really not. Oh my God, I'm, okay, okay. Now I almost have a nostalgia for these times when it was possible to be, how should I call it, gemütlich racist, in this directly obscene way, you know, because today it would be all that, können wir Ihnen ein bisschen Humus geben, um Toleranz zu zeigen für Ihre Kultur? You know, it would be all done in a much more polite way and so on. So I have a, a great nost nostalgie for So do I. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It reminded me of when I was young, not young, now I bought a DVD, DVD of DDR propaganda, you know. Reklamenfilme, ich meine. Yeah. Und, und it reminds me of this a little bit. Okay, but there's another story. Okay, let me go on. Now comes, I'm sorry, you will have to suffer half an hour. I will try to cover some of the sensitive things, points going on today. As you said, Die Linke, die Czernyszewski-Lenin-Frage, was zu tun, and so on. What is let to be me done? begin with the dirty detail, which happened to me. Uh, in, once I was in Portugal, and then a voluptuous lady in her early 40s, I don't know, was she flirting with me or what? She told me that, you know, although I am late, my last lover, when he saw me naked, he told me that if I just were to lose two or three kilos, my body would have been perfect. And then I exploded. I don't know what she expected from me. Sex, she didn't get. She got a long lesson on Lacanianische Theorie, <laughs> Objekt Kleine Sa. Because what I tried to explain to her is that this two, three kilos of overweight, too much, is exactly what Lacan calls Objekt Kleine Sa, L'Objectia, the object cause of desire. Because I told her the greatest mistake is to think that 
If you lose these two, three kilos, you would be perfect. No, now I come to a little bit subtler Hegelian point. These two, three kilos, precisely because they are too much, create a kind of a retroactive illusion that if you lose them, you would be perfect. But I absolutely guarantee you that if the lady were to lose two, three kilos, she would have lost also this retroactive illusion of possible perfection. It would be just an ordinary body. So you see, this is the finesse of what Lacan calls object of desire. There is something which functions as an obstacle to perfection. Just two, three kilos too much. But when you take this excess away, you lose that very thing to which it appeared as an obstacle. And uh, uh, why I'm making this point? Although I still consider myself some kind of a Marxist, I claim that in some sense, maybe, we can see today, although the analysis of capitalism by Marx is still absolutely the only true one, but that what Marx imagined as communismus was a little bit like capitalismus on a zwei, drei kilos. That is to say, he, his idea of communismus was too much capitalismus on a capitalismus. That is to say that Marx's idea of communism was still, we have, and Marx admired this to the end, this uh, uh, unglaubliche dynamic uh, capitalism always self-reproduces itself, the permanent growth of productive cap uh, capacities and so on. That if we just take away the capitalist forum of profit exploitation, we will have the pure ideal body of productivity. But he didn't see that this self-expanding circle of growing productivity is possible only through the obstacle. In exactly the same way that the lady had a beautiful body, uh, only with this apparent obstacle. Now, I'm not saying so we are condemned to capitalism. I'm just saying that it's often when we dream when we imagine a wild alternate future and so on, we often make this mistake that we really imagine, and Marx already made this criticism of Plato. He said the problem with Plato's Republic is not that it's too idealized, but in its very ideality, the ideal state, it's just an idealist version of the existing order. Although, incidentally, just as another philosophical hint, I wouldn't uh, underestimate Plato. The Lilber tradition is telling us good, more democratic Aristotle versus oppressive uh, uh, Plato. But whatever you think about Plato, you have to admit two things, which are today extremely important, I claim. First, read Plato's Republic. Did you notice that first there are no slaves in it? And Plato is explicit here. No slaves in his ideal state. While, as we all know, Aristotle takes slaves as a fact, and he even calls them, how is it, talking instruments or whatever. Second point, even more surprising, Plato says explicitly the fact that women play a 
lower role that they are not allowed to occupy the highest posts, that this is a total contingency in existing society that in his ideal republic, all, even the top political posts, will be open to men and women and so on and so on. So that's good to remember before you dismiss Plato as a conservative and so on. But so, uh, again, to my main point, so that's the problem. How to imagine the future? I think our, and by our, I mean precisely all this, uh, from Podemos to Occupy Wall Street, up to a point they were more serious, even to Syriza, all this movement that gave to all of us a kind of a new impetus, oh my God, change is possible, and so on. I claim they were all too utopian, but utopian in a very precise sense of imagining a certain ecstatic transgressory moment, like you remember, Geza Square, Tahrir Square, we were all crying, oh my God, one million people there, all solidary, and so on. I'm getting tired of this. In what sense? I think that, and I hope we will agree here, the true test of a radical movement for social change is not the big revolutionary orgy. One million of us, so beautiful we are there, but what in English they call the morning after, after the night of being drunk. Like when, after a month, half a year, a year, things return to normal. How will ordinary people feel the change at that point? I think that all conservatives like this idea that people to relax, they need every 20 years a kind of a pseudo-revolutionary explosion, and then they can dream about it for the next 20 years and so on. The problem is the morning after. I'm tired of this ecstatic moment. Uh, let me give you another cinema example. Did, I hope most of you did see the famous, but I didn't like it so much, film V for Vendetta where you remember at the end, people's rebellion, they break through the police cordon and they um, occupy, it takes place in some uh, futuristic totalitarian United Kingdom. They occupy the parliament, victory, everybody is dancing happy. My God, I would sell my mother into slavery to see another film, V for Vendetta part two. What happens then the next day? You know, they don't like to think about it. I think that more than ever, we should think about this. Otherwise, all those great moments, 68 or Occupy Wall Street, I t will tell you what they will become. Like, with some of my friends who were on Occupy Wall Street, it happened to me. Two months ago, I was sitting with one of them close to Wall Street in New York, in on the bench of the same park where it happened. And he told me it was so enthusiastic. I was crying, we were here. Then his phone rang and said, I'm sorry, I have to run to my bank now, and so on and so on, you know. It becomes kind of a nostalgic memory. Note, uh, I am tired of that. I want a boring revolution, revolution which becomes real precisely when it is translated into a little bit better every day life. And this is, again, the really uh, difficult thing to do. So let's go further here. Uh, 
with the, I'm jumping a little bit, I have to improvise, with, with uh, all the refugees coming now and so on, it again triggers, that's why I oppose them, not because some idiots even wrote that I'm going over to Pegida or whatever. No, don't be afraid, I'm not. I'm just saying that I think that uh, the reaction with some, okay, on the one hand, there are total horror. I'm absolutely, not, it's even too humiliating to say I'm against them. They don't deserve this. All that anti-immigrant stuff, the threat to Europe and so on. Yes, I think Europe is threatened today. Yes. And the main threat to Europe are precisely anti-immigrant nationalists and so on. I still appeal to your naive faith in Europe. Feminism, egalitarianism, social justice. Just imagine uh, Pegida here, uh, Le Pen in France, UKIP in England, with some miracle taking power. Would that still have been Europe? No, so the greatest threat to Europe are definitely defenders of Europe. But I also don't like the way some pseudo-radical, I claim leftists, uh, patronizingly elevate the pure refugees, poor, sorry, refugees, into what? You know, I'm unfortunately old enough to remember late 60s uh, New Left movement, and this was already the ironic joke, they were with a big light looking for the new revolutionary subject, you know, like who will be students or who, no? And a friend of mine from a distant European country put this in a message to me in such a pure, naive way. He wrote to me, the problem of the left in Europe is we don't have a revolutionary working class. It's a wonderful chance. Let's allow five million refugees to come and they will become the proletarian class. I wrote him, are you totally crazy? So you want to import the revolutionary class <laughs> to do the revolution. This is mixed with another thing. Now I come to more touchy topic. You will see why some people think, and I hope I will convince you at the end that I'm not Pegida, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's uh, this. Uh, we have to stop for inherent theoretical reasons, but also for practical political reasons, this totally false humanitarianization, sympathy for the refugees, you know, this, this is the worst reactionary tradition, for example, in Hollywood, you find it with Frank Capra films. The poor are good, you just have to listen to them to get them really to know. The reactionary idea beneath this is that we are all the same warm humans. They may appear strangers, but, you know, like uh, one form of this mega stupidity is the proverb which appears deep, deep. I despise it. Uh, the proverb which says, I'm not, I'm not kidding, I will quote it to you from some book on how to bring peace to Europe. An enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. It sounds deep, you know, like somebody is an enemy because I fetishized him, but if I were to... Now I will tell you, ah, it's good to learn. So Hitler was our enemy because, you know, we were not open to his side of the story and so on. That's my first reproach. No, sorry, there are real enemies. And 
I'm sure that Hitler will be able to tell you a wonderful, sincere, warm story. But I think, and here I'm anti-postmodernist, the story we tell ourselves to ourselves, this is not a deeper truth. This is a lie we are telling to ourselves to mask, not some of in our true inner essence, but to mask the horror of what we are really doing. This is, although I've written three books on emancipatory potential of Christianity, but here I partially agree with Steven Weinberg, you know, the great quantum cosmologist. He wrote that famous book on Big Bang, the first three seconds, where he said somewhere that without a religion, Good people would be doing good things and bad people bad things. But you need something like a religion to make good people do bad things. And I think, okay, it's not the entire truth about it, but uh, listen, let me imagine something and you will be, haha, my victim here. <laughs> Let's say I get an order to, with the knife, take the knife and pick out your eyes. I must say, Unfortunately, I'm a weak man. I would have some problems to do it. So what do I need? I need an ultra strong poetic or religious or mythological narrative which convinces me that this my horrible act is my greatest sacrifice so that I know I'm doing a horrible thing, but my country, my political credo is worth doing it. That's, uh, you know who knew this very well? You should read him, a great thinker, I'm mocking. Heinrich Himmler, in that famous Posen, Posnan speech, he saw the problem and he said precisely that we have to teach our SS officers. He has a wonderful, by wonderful I mean disgusting, of course, formula. He says every ordinary German is more or less patriotic. He can sacrifice himself for Germany. But what SS needs today is people who are ready to sacrifice their good soul, to kill children, murder, and so on. That's the true heroism. That's the true danger. And that's how this, I don't like the terms because it's too universal, but like strategically I say, in Nazism, Holocaust, or even in Gulag, it's very interesting, for example, to read I got hold of them, Soviet propaganda, when in the late 20s, they were collectivizing farms. The propaganda to get propagandists, communists, ready for it. It was precisely, you will have to do horrible things. You will see children, they're starving and so on. But beware that you have here to overstep your small bourgeois concerns to be able to do the really great thing and so on and so on. So let me go on. So what I'm saying here is that uh, what we have to renounce is this idea, typical liberal dream of universal understanding and sympathy. Again, that the other remains other only insofar as we didn't hear his side of the story and so on and so on. I think it's typical liberal Iberich, superiga, you know. Of course, then you are always guilty and left liberals like this. My God, how can I be sure that that expression that I used wasn't a little bit racist? So, you know, they like to discover how even if you are most politically correct, you are, you are somehow still a little bit guilty and so on and so on. What I'm saying is why don't we accept a couple of things? First, 
No, the true anti-racism today for me, let's say I live in a big building with uh, uh, Turks, Arabs, uh, Jews, uh, Latin Americans, Blacks, and I don't have any, I was doing this in New York. What I liked so much is that I didn't try to understand them, they didn't try to understand me. We politely ignore each other, we treated each other extremely respectfully, but the point was not to understand each other. Why not? Because, my God, I am a Freudian. I don't understand myself. <laughs> they probably don't understand myself. Let's drop this myth of understanding each other. I claim that understanding each other is almost an impossible, it's almost an impossible task. The problem is precisely to accept the other, let's say refugee, as a foreigner, the one whom you will never be able to penetrate with your understanding and so on and so on. Because all this idea, if we just talk to them and like, uh, uh, these two, your nice German colleagues there, the lady and the husband. You know, if we are just friendly, we will understand each other. No, we are really different. Why should we? I think that this was always part of the most reactionary ruling ideology. This idea, beneath our skin, we are all the same warm humans. No, we are not. You know why, why is this horrible? And you can find this in Ernst Lubitsch films as, and Preston Sturges, as again Frank Capra, who was no leftist, he was pro-Mussolini and so on, it's good to know. Capra's idea was poor people are good, you just have to listen to them to understand them. Listen, I remember when I was in Israel, uh, all the media reported on a sublime event. Uh, uh, an anti-terrorist unit broke brutally in the middle of the night in a Palestinian home, searching for the head of the family who was a, uh, allegedly a terrorist. Of course, he was not at home. It was only his wife and some small children. Of course, since the soldiers brutally broke in, the children started to cry. Then. Mother called them, I don't know what name, Sarah or whatever. One, Sarah, come here, come here. And then one of the Israeli soldiers, the attackers, discovered that, my God, I have a daughter with the same name. And he went to the mother, you see, I also have a daughter, the same name, and so on. Like, you know, forget about that we brutally invaded your home. We are all the same war humans, uh, warm humans beneath, and so on. This is, for me, ideology at its purest, at its most disgusting. It's difficult to sympathize with the poor, the refugees, if you can, if you have this guarantee, which is, I think, the form of extreme violence that basically they are the same warm people as me. Here, we should rehabilitate the Judeo-Christian notion of neighbor. Their nächste. As good interpreters have shown, nächste is not neighbor in the sense that the fellow man, the one who is like me. If you really read closely the Bible already, you learn that der nächste is your neighbor, close one, but you reach him at the level of the neighbor when you discover that there is a totally unexpected 
abyss in him. Like, let's say you have a closest friend, all of a sudden you discover when you catch him at home, imagine something disgusting, that he's slowly torturing a cat to death, that he's raping a girl, or that he's doing something incredibly noble or whatever. At that point, when you see that even if he seemed to be close to you, there is an abyss, he was a foreigner. This is love your neighbor. Accept this otherness. So uh, uh, why do I emphasize uh, uh, so much on this? Because it's Hegel, you know, Hegel has here a wonderful formula where he says that the secrets of ancient, ancient, ancient Egyptians for us they appear mysterious, what does the Sphinx mean? Were also the secrets for the Egyptians themselves. So that's what we have to accept. We cannot understand them, not because they have some evil inner essence, but because they don't understand, they are foreigners to themselves, we are foreigners to ourselves, and so on and so on. So uh, again, my point is a very simple one, but it's pro-refugee point. Don't idealize them. Yes, when you get hundreds of thousands coming, I'm absolutely sure that there are thieves, there are rapists against them, and so on. And you are a true racist if you then say, no, cordon, throw them out, and so on, and so on. You really have to accept them as, uh, you really have to accept them as neighbors. Now I'm making the next even more problematic point. Uh, uh, this is why I think, now you will say, of course, what I'm saying is an obvious obscenity. We simply have to respect different ways of life. Now I come to my even more problematic point. Uh, this logic of multiculturalism, simple multiculturalism, respect different ways of life. It covers up not the racist lesson that, you know, there are such barbarians, how can you respect them? But it covers up the antagonisms in their and in our way of life. Which is why, what do I mean? Uh, I will tell you immediately what, what do I mean uh, by this. We, uh, what to, how to react, for example, for the fact that from China to Zimbabwe, many third world leaders. And the tragedy is that they are not simply wrong. When you mention to them human rights and so on, they immediately shout culture imperialismus. Like what you are selling us as human rights are not truly universal human rights. They already privilege a certain way of life. And to some level, they are right. For example, when we formulate human rights, we emphasize effectively much more than their cultures do the autonomy of the individual. So what to do here? I think it's really a deadlock. There is no simple formula. What do I mean by this? For example, recently Robert Mugabe gave a speech, and I don't want to make fun of him. He brutally attacked gay rights as a Western invention, as a case of culture imperialismus. You are trying to impose on us your values, your way of life, and so on and so on. And of course, the same goes for uh, 
women's rights and so on and so on. Again, let me emphasize my point. I'm fully aware to what extent reference to Western human rights can serve as a justification not only of cultural imperialismus, but even of actual military imperialismus. For example, it's a great scandal that American, many American feminists supported the invasion of Iraq, claiming it's basically to help uh, Iraqi women and so on. The brutal irony of history is that they were extremely brutally wrong, because, you know, whatever you say, uh, against Saddam, and I'm certainly no friend of Saddam Hussein, but his regime, Iraqi, was formally secular. The only two Arab regimes which are formally secular are Iraq and Syria. Precisely the two, one already disappeared, the other one will disappear. So it's madness. The paradox is that they went there to redeem, for, among other things, for, for women's rights, the result is that now, with regime falling and control of Muslim militias, the situation of women is infinitely worse than under Saddam. The second irony is this one. United States, a Christian country, invades Iraq. Under Saddam, there were there two million Christians. Now, because of this confusion, and again, Islamic militias pressure, almost all of the Christians left Iraq. That's the price you pay for stupid Western politics. But what I'm saying is this. Uh, so where do you set the limit in respecting the other way of life? I see, and I want to provoke you here consciously, I see two limits. Why? Because I don't think there are simply different ways of life. First, every way of life has its own antagonisms covering them up. Second thing, uh, every way of life is universal in the sense that it incorporates some norms how to treat others, other ways of life. So, okay, let me tell you so that we don't go into this refugee problem where things are much more complex, I know. Let me tell you a thing that happened in my own country, Slovenia, I think some 10 years ago. Uh, we have a minority, but there are some 10, 20,000 of them, uh, Roma, the racist way, gypsies, no? Yeah. And from one of the Roma family, a girl escaped to the police, claiming my family, my father uh, did a prearranged marriage and sold me to another man. I don't want this, and so on. Okay, then uh, what to do? Then the Roma leader of their group said, but, and he was right, but are you aware that arranging marriages is a key feature of how our community reproduces itself? If you take away this from us, then maybe we will survive as doing some stupid folkloric dances, music, or some, 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 some gypsy barbecue or whatever, but as a way of life, we will disappear. So, what do you do here? He is totally right to claim that if you protect the girl, you don't respect their way of life. Again, what do you do here? And here, this is my, what idiots call, Pegida moment. I think that we should just, when they accuse me of defending Western rights, no, I don't mean Christianity and oppression and so on. 
I simply mean a certain level of sexual and religious, uh, uh, sexual, religious, and so on, freedom and tolerance. I think that, for example, whichever minority, including Christian minorities, like all those fundamentalists who terrorize the, their children, that we have the right to say, oh, sorry, this is terror on children or women, the state has to intervene. It goes without saying that the state should punish even more any violence against them, against others. But that's a crucial point. And the second point here, things for me get problematic. The problem for me with different ways of life is that what if one way of life finds intolerable some features in another way of life? Like, what if they find intolerable homosexuality and publicly attack it and so on? And this would be, if you ask me, my, my uh, limitation. In other words, people who criticized me emphasized how uh, refugees are not simply foreigners to whom we should show hospitality. We should accept them absolutely as equals and we should uh, recognize them. They should enjoy the same rights as the members of the diverse communities that make up Europe. I totally agree. I'm just adding, but which are these same rights? Where do you stop with women's rights and so on and so on? Why am I emphasizing this? Ah, here things get a, a little bit more complex. Because, you know, don't be, I claim that those who say, but listen, Arabs or whatever Muslims were oppressed, they don't yet have our sense of women's rights. We are now fighting other bigger battles. Let's tolerate that a little bit and so on. I think that you are terribly under patronizingly, this is true racism, underestimating them. For example, since I know well the situation in, uh, on, on the West Bank, Palestina, Ramallah, and so on, there is, uh, they have a couple of uh, rapper bands, like the most famous one, the lead singer is Tamer Nafar. He's a wonderful figure. I'm proud of him to be my friend. He's at the same time fighting Israeli oppression. He was arrested, all you want, but also singing rapper songs against honor killings in his own community, starting a movement there. And you know what's so typical? Uh, one would have expected liberal Israelis who pretend to be friends of Palestinians to support him. No, everyone is embarrassed. Why? Because he doesn't fit this idea of a primitive Palestinian that needs help. No, sorry, he's totally enlightened and so on. And then something, this is the point of my story, happened there which I found so breathtakingly disgusting. This guy, Tamer Nafar, gave recently a talk, I think it was UCLA, some big American campus, and he sang a couple of songs, among others also this song, Protesting Honor Killings. Of course, there were stupid pseudo-radical leftists there who attacked him immediately, claiming that, but you know, even if Palestinians are doing these honor killings of their women who allegedly betray them, they are doing this only because of uh, Israeli oppression 
compassion. We shouldn't mention this now and so on. And you know what he said? Uh, a friend of mine recorded his answer. It's a beautiful one uh, to his critics there. When you criticize me, you criticize my own community in English to impress your radical professors. I think in Arabic to protect the women in my own hood, and so on and so on. So that's my formula, not let's tolerate all that they are doing because of the higher struggle against whatever. No, what we should do is desperately fight for somehow, I know it's difficult, but bringing together our struggles, gay rights, whatever you want, abortion, and so on and so on, and their, their rights. If we make any compromises here, either the Western cultural imperialist compromise, fuck their rights, they are too primitive, we should just impose on, on them our struggles, this is horrible. And I will give you a funny example which happened in ex-Yugoslavia 20 years ago when the war was going on in Bosnia. Uh, some Bosnian feminists showed me a letter they received from some American feminist who wanted to show sympathy for Bosnians, poor women, victims of rape. And in order to establish communication, they sent them a questionnaire, a letter. And it was so implicitly racist. Like, first question was, do you, like the kind of a vulgarized Judith Butler, do you think that woman has an eternal essence, or do you think that feminine identity is performatively constructed through discursive practices, and so on? You see my point, if cultural imperialism exists, this is it. But on the, on the other hand, I also reject this Mugabe China line, which is, you know, if we do what we do to our women and so on, this is our specific way of life and so on. I think everything depends on bringing together these two. What uh, these two dimensions? And I can guarantee you, it can be it can be done. Otherwise, all the talk of respect is. Bullshit. I mean, I had, for example, an unpleasant, I must admit it, I will be again accused of racism, a very friendly debate, friendly up to a certain point, with my Muslim friends in London, and one of them told me, and he was right, it's not enough for you Western people to tolerate me. I want not to be tolerated, I want to be respected, and I want to be respected not just as an abstract human being, in spite of what I am, Muslim, but I want to be respected as what I am, as a Muslim. Okay, maybe I went too far, but I immediately answered him. I agree, but I am an atheist, totally rejecting religion. Are you, are you ready to respect me, not in spite of me being an atheist, but... Uh, for being an atheist. Well, it didn't end good, that's all I can tell you. <laughs> so what I'm saying is this. Now I come further in this, my problematic topic. I'm sick and tired of this European self-humiliating attitude. Whatever happens, we are guilty. We are cultural imperialists. Whatever happens in third world, it must be an effect of uh, neocolonialism, of European exploitation. 
To a large extent, this is true, and I am fully aware of it. Just think about the present wave of refugees. Of course, it's more complex, but it's first economic exploitation, ruining local economies, especially in Africa. Uh, then military interventions, they totally screwed up the whole. So we are responsible for that. But nonetheless, I still think that I'm a little bit suspicious of this almost universal fashion of uh, criticizing uh, Eurocentrism. Like, if you say something is Eurocentric, ah, it has to be rejected. Look, uh, my first problem is this one. But, uh, you know, it's significant that this is happening precisely today where global capitalism no longer needs the standard European liberal ideology. New forms of capitalism from Russia to China, Singapore, and so on, they work to India, they work very well with some kind of much more patriarchal or at least uh, authoritarian ideology and so on and so on. So that's the first thing that makes me deeply suspicious here, that this popularity of critique of Eurocentrism is a sad sign of how, as I, I have written text on it, of how this eternal marriage, it appeared eternal, between capitalism and democracy, okay, bourgeois democracy, but some democracy is reaching its, its limit. So I'm saying, uh, my God, I'm sorry to tell you, but communism is a European idea. If there was a guy who was part of Western enlightenment, it was Marx. I hope you will not accuse me of Pegida if I say that I am, uh, that I am, that in this sense, there are still parts of European legacy of which I'm very proud. And I think it's precisely the reference to this European legacy of equality, women's rights, justice, and so on, which allows us to overcome the very European limitations which we justly criticize. To return to your guide, uh, Descartes, you know where true multiculturalism in a good sense begins? In Descartes, I think it's discourse uh, discourse on method, maybe it's the other one, uh, where he says, when I was young, foreign others' ways of life appeared to me strange. But he says, but then it did strike me what if my own way of life may also appear strange and stupid from their own gaze, and so on. The, here it begins, the true multiculturalism, not with tolerance. I'm deeply suspicious of the very term tolerance. You know why? Because it culturalizes conflicts. No, conflicts do not occur because we don't tolerate each other enough. No, conflicts occur because of economic antagonisms, exploitation, political domination, here and there. So my formula is not, not clash of civilization, but understanding between civilizations. No, my formula of universality is not, we are all part of the great human race. My formula of universality is, we have our own fights here, they have their fights. Can we bring these fights together? 
the only universality is the universality of a struggle. The second thing that bothers me with refugees, and I am for them whatever you want, my God, and I mean it really, like uh, bring them here and so on. We are responsible for them. Is the, what I call humanitarianization. Sorry, but we should be aware that the ultimate solution is not, it's almost self-evident for me to say this, is not to, what, so that all the poverty that we cause in the third world, we will remedy it so that we will take the victims to us. No, the, 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 the tough questions has to be asked, what is in the global economic system that makes them what they are, and how to change, I think in the long term, the only change is a radical economic change. And you know who said this? Don't be afraid, slowly, slowly, I'm approaching the end. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah it's that, uh, you know Oscar Wilde, a funny guy, in his wonderful essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, he has some lines which I think fit perfectly refugees. Here is a quote at the very beginning of this essay. People find themselves surrounded with hideous poverty, hideous ugliness, starvation, and so on. It is inevitable that they should be strongly moved by all this. Accordingly, with admirable, though misdirected intentions, they very seriously and very sentimentally set themselves the task of remedying, of curing the evils that they see. But their remedies do not cure the disease. They merely prolong it. Indeed, their remedies are part of the disease. They try to solve the problem of poverty, for instance, by keeping the poor alive, or in the case of a very advanced school, by amusing the poor. But this is not a solution. It is an aggravation of the difficulty. The proper aim is to try and reconstruct society on such a basis that poverty will be impossible. And the altruistic virtues have really prevented the carrying out of this aim. Which is why all today's liberal billionaire capitalists repeat this story. You know, we are not alone. What about millions starving them? We have to help them. No. We shouldn't be there, of course we should do, but we should be more radical, not helping them, but help ourselves change the economic system, my God. This is, otherwise, it will just be this endless cycle of ruining them and then through big donators like Bill Gates and so on, helping them. The, in this sense, I still prefer the term communism. Because, you know, socialism, is not a word which divides enough. Everyone is today a socialist, my God. Not only the Führer, Hitler was a national socialist, but Bill Gates and somewhere. If by socialism you mean taking care of the poor, trying to make the world a better place with mo more solidarity, then I am a so Everyone is a socialist today. It just means, the, you know, like, or as Otto Weininger, you know, the Schlecht und Krag, he said beautifully, he said, socialism is Aryan, communism is Jewish. I agree with him, and that's for me the case. Although I'm not a Jew for the case for communism. So let me just conclude slowly. Uh, in welchem Sinne? 
Ai, 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 the democratic deficit of the European Union. The idea is European Union is basically okay, but it has a democratic deficit. This reminds me of some of my communist friends from my youth who said Soviet Union is still okay. They just have a little bit of a democratic deficit, you know. It's ridiculous. The point is, in democratic deficit was a necessary part of their, of their, uh, a necessary part of their system. And my conclusion here is the one, I'm not pleading for any totalitarian party rule, but precisely in, democracy is for me the same problematic term as socialism. Of course, in some sense, I am for it, who is not? But it is a word which does not allow us to make the right critical division, you know? There are good things happening under the name of democracy. There are horrible things, military intervention and so on, happening in the name of democracy. What do I mean by this? Maybe some of you know the story. I gave an interview some two, three weeks ago to Die Deutsche Zeitung, and then additionally they asked me two, three, some six, seven, sorry, questions of readers. And the question which provoked the greatest echo, hundreds of readers replying to it, was the question, democracy, yes, but who gave Angela Merkel the right to invite refugees to come here? Did she ask the German people for permission? Where is democratic legitimization here? I am here, of course, for Angela Merkel. But I'm saying, and this is something very tough to accept for the standard leftist, I'm saying we shouldn't fetishize democracy. Don't be afraid, not in the sense we need some Stalinist leader to tell us what, but we have brutally to accept that people can be wrong. They can be radically wrong. You know, there is no guarantee. We have to fight. It's not that ordinary, so-called ordinary people and political elite even more are somehow, they know the truth, we just have to help them to get rid of ideological mystifications and so on and so on. It's a, it's a tough, serious struggle. Uh, the next problem for me, apropos democracy, is that uh, it's the ultimate fetish in our societies. Fetish in the strict Freudian sense. You know what Freud means by, demo, by fetish, in a naive way. The last thing before you see castration, no? Isn't democracy the last thing we see before we have to confront some radical social antagonism? Like every liberal, we admit to you, yeah, we live in society of struggles and so on, but we have democracy. This is why, incidentally, I hate films like President's Man or Pelican Brief, so-called Hollywood left, where the story appears leftist, like, you know, an ordinary journalist or whatever, discovers a great corruption where even the president of the United States is involved and at the end, the president has to step down. But why are these films ideological? 
precisely because they too naively believe in the efficiency of democracy. Why are you so satisfied after seeing such a film? Because basically the message is, but my God, what a great country America is. When two ordinary guys like you and me can overthrow the mightiest man in the world and so on and so on. You see, this is for me the problem. And please don't misunderstand me. The solution is not that we need some enlightened dictatorship or whatever, but what is the solution? Haha, <laughs> now I'm concluding with your Leninist question. And then, you know, I think the battle is not lost. You know why? Because the global system, capitalist, is inconsistent. It has, all the time, it has to break its own rules. What in one part of the world it's considered commonly accepted, in another part it's intolerable. For example, in United States, that's why I still have a little bit of a soft spot even for Obama. Although it was ultimately a failure, his universal health care reform, but by promoting universal health care, he obviously disturbed an extremely sensitive point. You know that. Uh, Republicans brought him to Supreme Court and so on and so on. So in United States, uh, the universal health care, actual health care, universalized, is what I call the point of the impossible. Something that appears just a modest point. In Canada, they have it. We can do it. No, you cannot do it without triggering a deep change of the system. You know, it's a little bit like another, my last example from cinema. You know, I like this motive in science fiction films where when you are in a room, and by mistake, you press a button. You think this is just whatever, light water, but then by pressing that button, walls start to fall apart, you know, like the whole universe is ruined. And that's the art of politics. In different countries, you have different points of the impossible. In some countries, it can even be human rights. For example, in Turkey, you know, what is Turkey? It's the country which now officially is demanding for uh, ISIS for the Islamic State to be recognized, legalized, and so on and so on. So much about that. But what I'm saying is that, and of course, it's the same time the greatest American ally there, it's exactly the same as Saudi Arabia. No? Uh, but what I want to say is that that should be the art of politics. Not great revolution. This is such a comfortable position. Specific points for which you can be sure that, uh, points which are in themselves totally acceptable. Like, nobody can accuse you of communist revolution if you demand universal health care in America. And you can always say, but in Europe they have it, in uh, Canada they have it. Or another example, another struggle like this. Did you notice something extremely sad? That in the last decades we have a growth of de facto slavery. That is to say, I claim that capitalism is more and more approaching a state where it will not be able to maintain even the human rights, democratic rights that we are used to. Uh, uh, what is happening de facto now in Arab countries, I mean in those wealthy countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and so on? They are not called slaves, but they have hundreds 
of thousands of de facto slaves. We have them even in Europe. It was a wonderful, terrifying news. You remember some three years ago, there was a fire in a suburb of Firenze, a small wooden hut burned down and 17 Chinese workers burned to death. And then they discovered there are 15,000 blessed small city Chinese workers who totally illegal living in de facto slavery and so on and so on. So, you know, we can be fighting all these struggles. I am for, why do I believe in relative efficiency of these struggles? Uh, I remember from my youth when I was not a great dissident, but kind of a modest dissident. And I learned this, at least in the last decade of communism, when nobody took it seriously as an ideology. Uh, if you were a philosopher and wrote a book decrying communism as worse than fascism and whatever, uh, uh, Marx, origin of Stalinist gulag, no problem. They, by they I mean communists in power, the regime, they paid you a ticket to visit a Western anti-communist conference. But if you made uh, just a specific, precise, local, very particular demand, for example, covering some article in penal code, like we cannot have this verbal delict like that. It was, and you even was, you were even able to justify it in the terms of the ruling ideology. It was much more risky to demand this small change than the big thing. And friends from China are telling me it's more or less the same there now. Yes, you can be liberal, nobody cares. You make a specific demand against ecology, workers' rights, whatever, you are finished. And the very last, I promise you, here it is, point, the very pessimist, sad conclusion. Uh, I recently read memoirs by Ruth Klüger. This was a German girl who survived, uh, Jewish, who survived Auschwitz and then uh, as a small girl, and then after the war, something horrible happened to her. She visited Israel where she met a Hungarian Jew who was highly educated and also survived Auschwitz. But he, there when they met some Arabs, Palestinians, he, this Hungarian Jew, although she, he survived Auschwitz, he had the, the number statute. He exploded into hate speech, those dirty Arabs, we should throw them all out, and so on and so on. And she was first shocked. Her message was, her reaction was, my God, but he saw real suffering. He saw what racism is. How could he be saying that? And then, and this is maybe the saddest lesson of all these ethnic hatreds, then the truth hit her. You know, Auschwitz was not only a physical catastrophe. Auschwitz was not some kind of a educational community where if you survived it, you saw suffering, you gained some deeper truth, solidarity. No, Auschwitz ruined you also ethically. Don't idealize the victims. This is the saddest lesson for me. So my message is we have chances, small, patient work, but then you tell me, but why don't then simply become a social democratic reformist? It's very simple, because I'm too much of a pessimist. I think, and my God, even many people who are definitely not communists agree with me. From ecology to uh, 
to, uh, to biogenetics and so on. We are confronting problems for which I don't see how in the long term they can be, they can be not solved but even contained within the scope of, let's call it, liberal democratic capitalism. Just take ecology. A friend of mine, an excellent French theorist of catastrophes, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, he told me he's part of some high European committees and visited immediately after Fukushima, Japan. And he told me that for one day there was panic in the Japanese government because they thought that the, the radiation will spread down and that they will have to evacuate 30 million, the entire Tokyo area. How to do this? Who would do this? You know what I mean? This is not something that you can put on the market through higher taxation or whatever. They would have to move people probably out of Japan. Okay, in the old days, primitive, it's warfare. You invade Siberia, maybe they win, they, maybe you win. Now we cannot do this. So I think that here, or biogenetics, Fukuyama is no longer a Fukuyamaist precisely because of biogenetics. He admits now, we cannot do it in liberal capitalist way. Stronger measures are needed to coordinate this. I claim intellectual property is the same. It will be the death of capitalism. Capitalism is not able to incorporate it, and so on and so on. So you see, I'm almost I'm tempted to say a communist out of pessimism. I'm saying this, that the true utopia is not another society is possible. The true utopia is to think that with a little compromises here and there, we can nonetheless survive in a society in which we live. My real fear is what will become of our societies spontaneously if we don't uh, introduce some economic and so on changes. So I am a moderate, not even moderate, pessimist, but maybe this is the only position of hope today. I hate optimists. You know why? Because they are always disappointed. You know, if you are an optimist, it's never like this. I prefer to be a pessimist because, you know, then you have Syriza here, this, there, and it's always like a little bit better than you expected, you know. So don't, don't lose hope. Precisely in situations which are like ours, miracles do happen. From time to time, like Egypt, Tahrir Square, Syriza, and so on and so on, don't lose nerves. Miracles happen. I'm sorry if I spoke too long. Thank you very much for your patience. that he can ask me some question, you know, in his Stasi nature, you know, like that he can now. So please, Genosse. We have, in Grunde, have we also, we must now well, we have to agree on an end. When will this end? Three questions or half an hour? Or? Well, that's dialectical. Let's say 15 minutes. Okay, for two Okay, 15 mm -hmm. minutes. Well, now this is called the perfect guide to Europe. Yes, but you can speak German. Well, I do. I speak German. <laughs>
neonáci. We are here in Germany, after all, as my foreign minister once said. Now we have to come back to the topic of a pervert's guide to Europe. At least I always feel obliged to do so. Um, because we chose this title. Now, I read a bit about it, Europe. Now, if we have a Lacanian here and a psychoanalyst, yes, but I am not practicing as a psychoanalyst. Yes, but you are a theoretician. Imagine yourself in great psychic trouble. Would you even consider coming to me? Then you are really in psychic trouble. I would come. I think you know what you're talking about. Okay. Okay, but seriously, this old myth. Which one? Well, this myth of Europe. You know, like a, uh, you know this princess from Syria, from Jordan, she is taken to, or, uh, kidnapped, so to speak, to Crete by Zeus because he had fallen in love with her. Now there's this question that arises. It might be interesting to a psychoanalyst and a Lancanian as well. Now, if we say Europe today, then who is our Taurus? Who is our bull? There are two thieves. Uh, American liberalism and, on the other hand, what people call, but it has nothing to do with Asia, capitalism with Asian values. I, now I will tell you something precise. When people tell me, and my Lord, I know this, I was writing about this, how, you know, in Europe, Europe human rights, these are just a mask of neocolonialism and so on. But I claim the dialectic is here much more refined. The typical historical dialect, no, I will answer your question, okay. is not something is at the beginning authentic and then it gets perverted. A much more interesting political process is where something begins as an obvious ideological manipulation, but then in its use it gets unexpectedly authentic. For example, every Mexican will tell you when, when was it? I think around 106,000, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, uh, Virgen de Guadalupe, the Black Virgin, appeared. And everyone knows this is the exact point when Christianity was no longer simply the religion of the imposed brutal Spanish colonizers, but also became a medium for the brutalized uh, original people there to express their troubles and so on and so on. It's the same with uh, uh, universal human rights. Yes, I know at the beginning they were clearly the rights privileging people who are white, male and of certain social standing and so on. So at the beginning it was a lie. And you can see wonderfully if you read early liberal texts how this lie was justified, like John Locke and all of them. The logic was this one. Yes, every human being has 
the right to enjoy the human rights, but then they added, insofar as he is really a true, truly free human being. And then it begins. Women are too confused, impre impressed by senses. They, are, they cannot really act as a rational beings. Workers work too much. They cannot really freely think, and so it goes. But that was the miracle. It was a mystification. But then, Mary Wollstonecraft began. Why not also we women? The blacks in Haiti, why not also blacks and so on? In other words, what I'm saying is that I don't care how much the notion of Europe, European Union was uh, manipulated and so on. Maybe what I like about European Union, and I know that it's now practically a lost case, is that we have a, a transnational network which in some way, with all illusions behind and so on, nonetheless, isn't this some kind of a silent presupposition that it stands for a civilization which should look neither like pure Anglo-Saxon American liberalism, neither that, nor that famous capitalism with Asian values and so on. And maybe the case is lost. What do I know? But that's, so there are two thieves, I agree. And I'm, I'm not saying we are returning to some original core of Europe or whatever. Although I'm tempted to say maybe we do, you know, because with all the limitations, only men, not slaves. But you know, what was the miracle nonetheless of limited as it was Greek democracy? It's not only that those who were poor or whatever also had the right to vote, but it was that they, like, or let me jump from Greece to French Revolution. When did the revolution really begin? Not when the third estate said simply, the first two estates had too much power, we also want our votes to be here. No, when they said the first two estates just stand for themselves, we are the people, we, the third estate. This moment of universality, which you find even in Christianity, that's what I like in Christianity, Christianity is, for me, a religious form of atheism. In Christianity, the message is, God dies, what survives is Heiliger Geist, which means emancipatory, egalitarian community. That's what even, I had debates in München with bishops and so on, and I confused them by asking them the most elementary, simple questions. Like, for example, when Christ says, if you uh, don't hate your mother, father, sister, you are not my follower. What exactly did Christ mean there? My God, it was incredible how, yeah, we have to think about it, blah, blah, and the Lord, fuck you. You know this for 2,000 years. I didn't bring <laughs> some new thing, you know. And then it's incredible what stupid answer I got. One of their answers was we shouldn't absolutized Christ, like, my God. Uh, I thought, my God, in medieval times, I would burn you for this day, no? They, they, they told me, God just meant you shouldn't like your parents too much, excessively. Then I told me, this is an obscenity. 
You are making God a kind of a jealous guy like you know. I can love you, you, but God says, but you should love me more. I said, no. And I told him, it's total obscenity. If you read the New Testament, Jesus said, I will return when there will be love among you. Jesus is not the one to be loved. He is the authentic love. Whenever there is authentic love among people, Jesus is there. And this is what I admire in, in Christianity. Hegel was right when he said that what dies on the cross is not <coughs> a messenger <coughs> a representative of God. Like God sent his son. Oh, sorry, guys, it didn't work. My son, come back to me, you know. Uh, I think that, if I may bore you with this a little bit, but it's crucial, I think. The first ideology critique text, it's the book of, how do you pronounce it here? Job, Hiob. Hiob. Are you aware what we read there? First, things go wrong for Hiob. Then what happens? Ideology. Three theological friends come, each tries to justify his suffering. One said, even if you don't know God is just, you must have done something wrong. The second one says, uh, says uh, God is testing, whatever. And Hiob doesn't say I'm innocent. He just insists on one simple fact. He don't accept that my suffering has some deeper meaning. And now comes the miracle, you know. Then God comes, Jehovah, and says, Hiob is right, all that those three idiots, or four, I don't know, Friends, theologically, everything is wrong. And then comes the true miracle. Then he nonetheless asks God, I'm giving you kind of a Reader's Digest simplified version of it, I know. Then he asks God, but nonetheless, why did I suffer? Why it happened? And then God answers those famous, with those famous arrogant words, but where were you when I created this, that? And this is usually read, I claim, in a totally wrong way. It's usually read as some kind of uh, uh, as affirmation of a radical gap between men and, like, who are you, ordinary idiot, there to understand what were my plans? But my favorite theologist, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, gives a wonderful reading. I couldn't believe my ears. His reading is that God's answer is. You think you are in trouble, but look at the universe. I screwed up everything. Everything is a big mess. Like it's, it's some kind of abdication of God. And I think this is what Jesus Christ means. It means what dies is God of the beyond. The deepest message of humanity, of Christianity, and I'm not alone here, even a conservative theologist like Paul Claudel accepted this, is that God is helpless without us humans. As Hegel put it nicely, what dies on the cross is not a representative of God, it's God of beyond itself. It's this idea of God, like, you know, this for me the most disgusting metaphor that you can imagine, of that when you see evil, it's like if you look too close at the painting and you think it's just a stain. But if you look at it from a proper distance, you can see that what appeared to you as a stain is part of a global harmony. This, I think, is what the death of Christ symbolically prevents you. It's an obscenity, for example, to say Holocaust, Gulag, or Congo slaughter. 
This just appears to us as a stain because from our limited view, we cannot see how this contributes to some global harmony and so on and so on. No, the death of Christ means no. You don't have the right to take this abstract view towards some presupposed meaning inaccessible to us. And that's for me the message, Heiliger Geist. Heiliger Geist is simply the community of believers without any transcendent guarantee in God or whatever. Now you will say, but what about the finale of the Bible, all the, well, there I have Stalinist problems. I think book of apocalypse and so on, this is return to paganism, I should. No, you see, this, be this beautiful view of God, and God means any transcendent guarantee. There is some big historical necessity, whatever. No, we are radically alone, left to ourselves. When Christians say that the highest gift of God is freedom, yes, but it's this radical freedom, freedom of being fully responsible, of being about, okay, I talk too much, but all this is for me part of a, a European legacy. Because what I like in Europe is that if you look at the notion of justice, the usual pagan notion of justice is restored balance, you know, like uh, some particular part of society or wants too much, and then if you want too much, it's too much, balance has to be restored. Like when I was in China two years ago, maybe you know the story, I had the same experience. I asked the Chinese because, you know, they no longer use now the term uh, communism. They use the Confucian term uh, harmonious society. So I asked them, could you please explain to me what do you mean? And they gave me a perfect explanation. They say in a harmonious society, every individual does his, her job, is at his or her proper place. Father is a good father, pupil is a good pupil, master is a good master, worker is a good worker, and so on, no? And I told them, oh my God, now there is no multicultural misunderstanding. We call this fascist corporatism <laughs> in Europe. No. What I want to say is that Christianity stands precisely against this. Against Christianity, the whole idea of Heiliger Geist means that, no, we are not part of totality in the sense of, you know, harmonious totality and you just have to play your role. Every one of us has the right to direct contact with universality, bypassing particularity. That's the message of Heiliger Geist and so on, which is later realized in, I'm crazy here, I'm tempted to say that uh, Heiliger Geist is the first form of Communist Party or whatever. That is to say, this idea, if, okay, Buddhism also has this. We are all equal in nirvana. But in nirvana, the catch of Christianity is this crazy hope that our ultimate equality is not just equality in death, that equality can be materialized as an actual social organization and so on. So, okay, I can go on indefinitely, I will not, but you see, all this, I think, is part of European legacy which is threatened today. Because today I claim more and more the spontaneous ideology of late capitalism is some kind of, let's call it, enlightened hedonist Buddhism. 
No, 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 it's empirically true. Most, I even read that among American top managers, most of them have this idea, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, meditation is their fetish. The, their spontaneous idea is this one, I earn billions, but ultimately I have to be aware that this is not really what life is about. It's just, all is just a game of appearances and so on. My true self is somewhere else and so on and so on. I don't accept this. I don't believe in this inner authenticity or whatever. You know, this is why the greatest Zen master could organize torture. This is why, read the book that I like, I always mention it, Aldous Huxley, Grey Eminence. It was the secretary of Cardinal Richelieu, the most brutal manipulator of 30 years war. At the same time, every evening, he was writing the most beautiful, authentic, mystical meditations. And that's what, or even let me take an example from your own past. It did strike me so much when I learned that Reinhard Heydrich, you know, the, the Wannsee guy, you know that in the evenings he was very good violin player. He was playing with his friends late Beethoven's Streichquartete. You know, this is the horror that inner authenticity or whatever in no way helps you to do, to do horrors. The truth is outside in what you actually do. In, along these lines, again, I would have claimed that, that, like, it's a more paradoxical position. Yes, we should overcome Eurocentrism, but European tradition is the one to give us the tools to do this. The, sorry? No, definitely I, why, not. No, no, I can, I can, I'm ready. I thought I will be falling apart. Then it's okay. But where did you get that? I simply disclaim the truth of what you are saying. Where did I advocate? This is sorry, a direct lie. Where did I advocate the deportation of the refugees? Show me one passage and I kill myself here now. <laughs> no, my point was this one, that Western powers on purpose make it difficult for the refugees, you know, this humiliating transport through. Why not do something like this? Establish bases in Libyan coast, there, there, and organize it through airlift or whatever. Why this humiliating process and so on and so on? As to, as to uh, sorry, what, were, what was your, this is my, uh, when you say militarization, what militarization? Closing border, did I ever say this? No. Yes, I did. I do to provoke, I admit this, but not militarization in the sense of we have big armies which are there masturbating, doing it. They can be very usefully used to organize large projects, like moving hundreds of thousands of people and so on. I don't, and this is part of a much larger project that I have, it may be crazy, with my friend Fred Jensen, who is directly there you will get the explosion. He thinks that 
The army can be subverted as the only large force which functions outside. And incidentally, this is a long tradition of one and so on. I mean, I'm not afraid of the term militarization because my enemy is not the state. My enemy is big capital, my God. The problem is any, I'm ready to make a pact with the devil to, to, uh, to limit capital. My problem is this, which is a deadly serious one. How to prevent the uh, right-wing radicalization of Europe? That's the true problem now. And through this leftist sentimentality, you will not do it. I know, I know, well, you know what I fear? The right-wingers will silently win, and then, as always, there will be wonderful leftist analysis of why it had to fail. You know, like, the leftists are at their best when a revolution fails, and then they write an excellent theory of why, of why, it, had to, of why it has to fail. I mean, I'm simply thinking about, no, yeah, I know this is a radical position, but look, look at Venezuela and so on. I simply don't think that army is necessarily a reactionary institution. I think that, now I will be very brutal, all those Silicon Valley corporate hippies are much more dangerous. Like, I fear much more Google than the army. I fear, you know who convinced me? Julian Assange, he gave the best definition of Google, which is privatized corporate NSA. And they are directly connected, they collaborate with it, and so on and so on. So that's the first thing. Second thing, when you said gay community, yes, I know all this. My God, I was even, I know even, maybe I'm sorry, I don't know from where you are from. I was in Ramallah and visited a gay club there and so on. Ramallah is an exceptionally vibrant city uh, uh, and so on and so on. But you know what I don't get? Because people who criticize me, and when I insist on that minimum, you know, gay rights, women's rights, and so on, they tell me, but this is a pseudo problem. But my answer is, okay, so it's a pseudo problem, perfect. Then there is no problem. But from what I hear, it's not purely a pseudo problem. I read a leftist analysis, which claims that, for example, I underline three times the word leftist, which claims, for example, that here in Germany, over 2,000 Muslim girls per year escape home, and they have to be put escaping from their family, and so on, and so on. I'm not saying that we should in any way censor, censor, uh, censor, Muslim communities for this. I'm just saying if, now you will say this is exaggeration, no girl does this. I say perfect, so it's okay. But if a girl does this, the state has to protect her. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. It, you know, and okay, when you say this exaggeration and so on, did you follow, and I checked it through my leftist friends, did you follow what happened, now it's almost a year ago, in England, in Rotterdam, where it was, it exploded in the media that uh, Pakistani gangs in a city of about 100, close to Liverpool, somewhere there, Pakistani gangs, uh, systematically, by systematically I mean for a period of six, seven years, 
serially raped 1,500 uh, poor, poor white girls. Am I saying we should demonize Islam for this? No. I've written quite a lot celebrating Islam. I am well aware of the wonders in Islam, and so on and so on. I just think that this, uh, how should I call it, uh, this leftist attitude of proclaiming any criticism of Islam, or Islamophobia, and so on. No, I totally agree with you that it's not only Islam. My God, it's horrible. That's why I'm going literally two weeks from now to Ramallah to uh, participate then, it's an ingenious move. We are organizing, with my friends, a Walter Benjamin conference in Ramallah to steal it from them. And I'm going there, and I know what horrors religious fundamentalists, for example, Israel is doing now. For example, you know that uh, Israel is really something ominous now. Why? Because they combine this self-presentation as enlightened, open society with elements of very strong religious fundamentalism. For example, I, my prediction is that in two, three years, they will simply drop all this bullshit uh, two-state solution, and they are already laying the ground for this solution of West Bank is ours, don't bullshit, bullshit us. And you have now already a couple of ministers in Netanyahu movement, uh, sorry, government, who openly say West Bank is ours. Why? Because it says so in the Bible. I mean, if this is not religious uh, fundamentalism, then I don't. And all the other things, I'm well, for example, direct racism in American press more and more. There was a text, a report in uh, New York Times apparently neutral, deploring, new wave of violence there. But you know, be careful, listen to, to verbs. It said, it's tragic, in the last month, nine Israelis were murdered and 55 Palestinians were killed on the West Bank. Eh, 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 murder, killing, and so on. I mean, <laughs> I have so many, uh, all I'm, and I went very far here, for example, the same thing that I'm doing to Islam, I'm doing to Judaism, I'm doing to Christianity. My God, I, for example, a touchy subject in some Southern European Catholic countries. I claim it's absolutely clear that pedophilia among priests is the obscene background, it's part of the Catholic identity. How can you guess this? Be simply because of the reaction of the church, it's in, okay, maybe now it will be better. I don't know, let's wait and see. But how church is incredibly protective, like in Slovenia, small city Slovenia, a priest was caught serially raping children. What the church did is that they prohibited parents of the abused children to talk about it and publicly, and they simply put the priest onto another, uh, onto another, sorry, into, uh, into another part of Slovenia and so on and so on. And to be even clearer, I don't agree with, uh, I think it's ridiculous and it is racist. The French uh, state imposed prohibition of wearing, how do you call it, a burka, uh, burka, burka veil, yes. My problem is only one, if the girl 
woman wants to wear it, absolutely no problem. My problem is, what if the girl doesn't want to wear it? And she really doesn't want it, like not just a little bit. These are, and, and I'm not even saying what we should do. Maybe we should allow it. I'm just saying these are serious problems. And okay, I put it like this. I hope this will be tolerant enough for you. I hated as a racist, not I as a racist, I hope, but as an example of racism, I hated all that after Charlie Hebdo killings, you know, all that bullshit of we are tolerant in the West, they are primitive and so on. Uh, 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 they are intolerant. No, every civilization has here some points and it's good that it has them where what you don't tolerate. Of course, it's easy to claim how tolerant we are towards making fun of uh, Muhammad. But, and I, it's good that we cannot do it, but just to give you an analysis, an example. Imagine someone making fun of, of uh, Holocaust. Imagine someone making fun of raped women in our society. Our tolerance ends there. And I think it's right that it ends. But my message is only the opposition is in no way as simple, as simple, as simple as that. You know? So what is the problem? What that, you mean that rapes in our society here are totally acceptable? Well, I don't know enough to what extent this is really acceptable. Is it really? Look at Julian Assange, where you have, okay, but that's politics. I know it's different. But I think, frankly, that here, uh, your position is a little bit too simplified. To women here, is it really that if you are raped, you can do nothing? No, sorry, I don't, I don't, I, I don't believe that. But I'm asking you another question, counter question. So I find something so mysterious. The more immigrants are coming here, the more Europe is blamed for intolerance and so on. What about countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, Kuwait, Qatar, Emirates? Sunni Muslim countries, incredibly uh, wealthy countries. Why don't they receive? Sorry? Yeah, please. Yeah. For example, in Germany, there are 20 unchangeable or meant to be unchangeable rules in the Constitution. One of them is the right to silence. That has been changed, especially in the last few years, has never been changed. It's exactly the opposite, which implicates little tax, like yeah, yeah. Uh, raises rate tax. At the end of it, into the exact opposite. Now, my question is, I wonder, this is something which can be fought for because it comes out of... Yeah.
What is happening? You mean limitation of the right? No, no, sorry, sorry. I just wanted to give you more time. You mean, why do we talk about uh, Muslims, rapes, and so on when Europe is limiting the right to asylum? Or what? I think you are too simplified here. First, you see, this is so absurd. I know in Germany there is much to criticize, but okay, I will answer you with a simple counter question. Why do you criticize Europe, which nonetheless is serially accepting migrants? 10,000 people are passing daily through Slovenia. Why are we not talking about Qatar, about Saudi Arabia, and so on? I know, I agree. Just one more sentence. Yeah. Why? Okay, so the right, uh, I agree with you, the political system. But do we want to become an embedded? No, we want to preserve what we regard as good in our political system. Always we'll find something What do you mean by our political system? No, 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 wait a minute, this is a key de debate, you know why? Because, because uh, uh, what is beneath this, your point of right to asylum, it practically means, and I know it sounds so noble, but let's talk frankly. The underlying idea is everyone can come to Europe and demand to be instantly a citizen. Because nobody really checks asylum rights and so on. The idea is Europe should simply open borders. Up to a point, I agree with it. Okay. No, but you know, uh, no, you are saying here, look, it's not as simple as that. You know why not? For example, I was in Turkey when, you know, they had a referendum in Switzerland prohibiting uh, 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 how to call it, minarets in mosques. And the, the hypocrisy, West, horrible, uh, you should uh, judge it. But then I learned that in Turkey, you are not even allowed to build other religious objects then. I, if you ask me frankly, yes, the right to asylum, but now I know I'll be again accused of racism and so on and so on. But I think it's totally crazy and provocative to treat the right of asylum in this way that, okay, millions can come here, stop. No. There, first, it has to be organized, I claim, and it can be organized. Why not? Why not organize it? I'm excluding no one, but why not organize it? Why? This is so humiliating. 21st century and tens of thousands of people are, are, are walking through there. But don't, you say, let's not talk about Saudi Arabia and so on and so on. Okay, then I ask you, but isn't it symptomatic that you are now criticizing Germany 
which, in spite of all criticism and so on, showed relatively the most openness. You see, again, this is the superego logic. You criticize a country which was doing relatively the best here. Criticize England, criticize France, criticize them, and so on. And also, I don't accept what you are saying, like, we don't want to go to, to Saudi Arabia. Das you prefer mich, us. Es freut mich okay, jetzt wirklich sehr, damit so sind wir here and follow, I tendenziell, think that, sorry, es freut mich sehr, aus Ihrem Munde, es freut mich als deutschen Patrioten aus Ihrem Munde, eine so starke Verteidigung der Position Deutschlands zu hören. Nein, das meine ich ganz ehrlich. Das finde ich irgendwie ganz gut und ich finde es irgendwie nicht so produktiv, nach zwei Stunden, über die man, in denen man über etwas geredet hat, zu sagen, warum haben wir nicht über was anderes geredet. hat, glaube ich, hier Text erzählt, über den man selber nachdenken kann und hat, glaube ich, an vielen Punkten Positionen gebracht, wo man die Fragen, die hier gestellt wurden, sich selber hätte beantworten können. A couple of millions of refugees, no problem for me, but in an organized way with clear rules. This I see as the only way to prevent, because you said you squeeze out of democracy, democracy. What do you want then? The right-wingers to win? Because if it goes on like this, the greatest victim will be the, the refugees. I mean, uh, and I think we, one should be very Precisely, when you are telling me, but there are, uh, there are negligible, there are also rapes here, and so on and so on, then okay, then there is no problem. You know, it's a little bit strange when you criticize me for wanting to limit something that at the same time you claim it's marginal and doesn't exist practically, and so on and so on. If it doesn't exist, okay, okay, what's the problem? I think if you ask me, and my God, I was in Arab country. You know, it's so strange that you expect from Europe this multicultural openness, but these are exactly the parts of the world which are probably at this point among the most open. United States is already le less open, I claim and so on. It's much greater ideological pressure. Not to mention about all those so much celebrated Latino American countries. My God, they have quite a lot of racism of their own. Not to mention, I know what I'm saying now, if you want to see real everyday racism, sorry, go to China. I saw incredible things there of how the Han majority, they treat like dog the non-Han people. Like, I was in a bookstore buying books. Ahead of me, there was obviously a non-Han Chinese, some Tibetan, Urgu, I don't know what. And the, the lady behind the cashier simply made a sign to me, you know, like, fuck this guy, come, come ahead, and so on. So much, so much everyday, so much everyday, so much everyday ra ra racism here. But I think, sorry, how should I put it? Different cultures, ways of life are a very delicate fact. And all I'm saying is that the simple, pure multiculturalist formula, everything comes, they just retain their own culture. 
absolutely doesn't work. You need some basic rules shared by all. The same rules for all. I totally subscribe to this. And I think. Sorry? Ich glaube, das war jetzt irgendwie. No, I'm ready to go on, but. This is, this is Stasi. This is Stasi for talking about. Ja, ja, und du sagst, du bist der Stalinist. Und wenn dann aber mal die Ansage kommt, dann kommt der slowenische Dissidententor. Der sich. Was heute, Stalinist zu sein, ist heute die größte Dissident wahrscheinlich. Being a Stalinist is the epitome of dissent. Of course. To make my position clear, only you are not allowed to know. Only, only one thing, there is only one thing that I like about Stalin. You know what? He was horror, the greatest ethico-political catastrophe and so on. One thing I like, a little bit. He was the only one who made the Western powers really scared. He scared them shit, you know? That's the only tiny thing that I like about Stalin. They were really afraid of him. Ja, verdammt nochmal, das ist ein großartiges Schlusswort. Slava Zizek, vielen Dank. Thank you very much. Dankeschön. Thank you. Es sollte ein Abend über Europa werden. Wir haben über die Welt gesprochen, aber um Horkheimer zu zitieren, wer von Europa will, reden will, darf von der Welt nicht schweigen. Vielen Dank nochmal. No, sorry, I didn't mean it literally. Yeah, 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 yeah. The party will tell you when to really disappear. Not now. Please, please do it. Just. Yeah. Yeah. what you are saying. First, let me say a little bit that I know about India. It may surprise you. They, they, uh, uh, no, his point is that in India you have localization politics, but there is a tension on the one hand, if I understood you correctly, I support localization, but at the same time I'm for state and so on. Listen, here I do have problems. Yeah, okay, but here I have 
problems even with Marx and so on. I think we can struggle about the name we use, is it a state or not? But I think the present situation, ecological, biogenetic, uh, and so on, will absolutely demand mega large organizations to deal with them. I radically don't believe into all this, you know, anti-representational politics. We have small communities collaborating, doing that work and so on. People then tell me in Venezuela it worked, local communities. I tell them, yes, fuck you, because they have the big boss Hugo Chavez with an extremely strong military supported state and so on. So my, but, uh, I think, I think that the opposition that you made, it's not a necessary opposition. My ideal is what, for example, up to a point be before they screw it up, was happening in Venezuela. You have very strong local struggles, but in collaboration with a strong progressist. As for India, I totally agree with you and even more horrible because Modi is not only a Hindu racist nationalist, but at the same time, the most brutal neoliberal. I was horrified when Modi said in an interview, Modi, the Indian prime minister, that the price of Chinese labor force is getting a little bit too high and that this is a chance for India to sell its workers, I mean, to employ them in an even cheaper way. So to make it very clear, when I was in India, I established contacts with two only organizations. The lowest uh, untouchable, those who are cleaning uh, dry toilets, and the Naxalite. Uh, this, this was, these were my only links in India. On the other hand, I made some statements because of which uh, immediately after I returned to Slovenia, there was an official depeche from Indian government to Slovene government, like how could they allow such a citizen, like how will the state punish me, the Slovene? So here I simply totally agree with you. I just don't like this vision, you know, local communities. No, I want everything. We should want all power, local communities and state and so on and so on. Let's grab the state where we can. Let's use it and so on. Don't, you know, don't paint the state as I don't think the state is automatically our enemy. The enemy is capital, the global organization. State is something which can be misused, but it can also be used. I know it's problematic what I'm saying here, but as you probably know better than me, there is a long debate in Marxism about the weaknesses of the uh, Marxist theory of state and so on and so on. I mean. My basic thing is, again, imagine Fukushima, it would have been just a little bit stronger catastrophe, you have to move 30, 40 million people there. How will you do that? With local communities? No, with mega strong, larger than state organization only. We will simply need this if there will be this type of large disturbances and so on and so on. Here I am, I know this sounds authoritarian, large organizations, and so on and so on. But it's even worse than you think now. Because at the same level, now I will do something really low. I appear, appeal to your lower instincts. 
I wouldn't like to live in some small city local mobilization community where every afternoon you have to meet how we will distribute water, kindergarten. I want a certain level of nice alienation. Some institutions take care of this, I can do my stupid work and so on. I, I think that the true problem is to organize in a democratic, authentic way efficiently this everyday life, not this permanent emergency state every afternoon we have to meet water, electrical plant, and so on and so on. I don't think that it's automatically a fascist vision to say things should function, you know. <laughs> I like a little bit of this boring, regular life, life where things function in an anonymous way. Sorry for, I'm really sad that, where is that Stasi guy who prevented me there? Now you can come here. Do you confess? Do you confess? What, what shall I confess? This is how traitors answer, you know. <laughs> First confess, then we will tell you what, the, what <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I will confess. Slava Zizek. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.